Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. The other day I uh, went out to uh, lunch with uh, some friends at a uh, restaurant and uh, parked uh, outside the restaurant was a, a Lamborghini car and there were people, you know, photographing the car and different people were talking about the car and, um, you know, talking about what a powerful engine it had and, and so far and so forth. I think it was a very late model Lamborghini. It certainly looked like it would go very fast. And um, I guess the its sleek looks are, are really cool, but for a lot of people that, I guess, buy the, a car like that, one of the features is the powerful motor that is in the car, which means that, you know, it has a very high top speed. Now, I'm not sure what the top speed of a, a Lamborghini is. I guess it's probably over 300 kilometres an hour, you know, somewhere around there. Um, and, you know, it's it's classic. These are the, the motor and the machine and the design of the machine is one of the very important and characteristic and expensive features of uh, that car to give it uh, that huge speed. Um, one of the other things, of course, that there I've noticed quite a few uh, recently, particularly when I've um, been at uh, the beach, I've seen people flying drones. And I read an article about a, a racer drone that had four propellers, and these propellers spin at really, really high speeds. Uh, I think it was 4,600 revs per minute. And it had a speed, a top speed of 283 kilometres per hour. And so this was a very, very complex uh, machine. And the fascinating thing, of course, is that the, um, these machines, of course, are designed by engineers and a team of engineers using, you know, a lot of maths and a lot of knowledge, the laws of physics and, of course, the, the motors themselves. In the case of the drones, the electric motor. In the case of the car, it's a, it's a petrol engine. And one of the problems with car engines is that uh, quite a bit of the energy is wasted as heat. So instead of being used to turn the wheels, this energy that is wasted actually heats the engine up and so the engine then has to be cooled so it doesn't overheat. Now one of the ways that scientists are working on is increasing the efficiency of motors is to reduce this amount of waste energy, uh, particularly as heat, and somehow turn it more into motion. And so at, um, at the present time, as far as I know, the best gasoline or petrol engines uh, only about 30% efficient. In other words, only 30% of the energy that is there in the petrol, stored as chemical energy in the petrol, only 30% of that energy actually ends up driving the car. So, so that Lamborghini car would use a lot of extra energy um, would be extracted from the fuel to, um, in order for it to use that 30% or thereabouts to uh, generate all the horsepower to push it at its high top speed. But um, one way that scientists can improve or engineers can improve the efficiency of engines, it seems to be, is to make them smaller. But this is one of the difficulties there becomes 
all the different parts of the motors have to work together perfectly and it's very hard to make them um, you know, so small beyond a certain point. So the, as they get really, really small, it becomes um, you know, very hard from our present technology to make those motors. Uh, for a start, uh, we have to use microscopes to see them and so forth. And, of course, this is uh, work that's being done in the field of uh, nano uh, technology. And it's interesting that one of the scientists working in this area, James M. Tour, M. Tour, M for mother, uh, in the middle there, um, is um, uh, a very, very strong creationist. And if you Google James N. Tour, you know, creation evolution, you can see some of the things that he said about um, uh, these very small uh, engines and um, in the nanotechnology and, and very, very small cars that they are working on. He actually leads a team of uh, scientists that are looking at how they can build these tiny little uh, cars that are powered by tiny little motors. Um, and I think if I remember the statistics right, they're so small that you could fit more than a thousand of them on the tip of a pin. There might have been even ten thousand on the tip of a pin. These little molecular engines that they're looking to develop. But you know, each one of us has billions of motors in us that are much more complex than anyone can build. Um, and these motors are in our cells. And this is uh, amazing to think that these uh, motors uh, are in, our, in the cells in our body. The world's smallest motor that we know of is called ATP synthase. And uh, if you, you know, look that up uh, on, the, on the internet or in your biology book, um, this is an amazing little motor that that actually uh, rotates. And um, from what I read in an article, we have trillions of these in our body. And yet um, they're so small, they're about a hundred thousandth of a millimetre in diameter. So these are very small. So a millimetre, as you know, is very tiny. So if you think one hundred thousandth of that. So it's very important that these motors actually work because they actually help to make the fuel that our cells run on. Uh, they help produce a chemical called ATP, which, um, and uh, this is a, a com chemical compound that actually provides food, uh, uh, the energy for our body to run on in, in our muscles. It's quite, quite amazing, actually. Um, it's very interesting that... Um, Again, I was uh, watching um, a little while ago a movie about um, the Second World War in Germany and, of course, cyanide was um, used as, uh, uh, by uh, some of the Germans as a way of um, uh, taking lives if they were uh, captured and they didn't want to be um, tortured anyway. They needed to, to die. And cyanide is such a deadly poison because it actually stops the ATP production. That's how it works very, very quickly, or one of the ways it can work. Um, it also, from memory of my chemistry, substitutes for oxygen um, in haemoglobin too, but probably the ATP production is the more serious one. 
This, uh, so this little motor is actually powered by an electric current, which is uh, due to another part of the cell that acts like a tiny battery. And this little motor then spins at 10,000 revolutions per minute, or RPM. So that means, yes, it turns around 10,000 times in a minute. And each, turn, each time it turns, it actually produces three molecules of ATP. Now, this little ATP motor is almost 100% efficient because almost all the electrical energy that comes from that little battery is turned into ATP. Now, it can be argued that ATP synthase could not have evolved because you can't have evolution before you have a living thing that can make copies of itself. And every example of a living thing that we know of has ATP synthase in it. It's needed to live. So that's a very, very important point, really. So, you know, we talk about, you know, first life, first cells evolving, and people talk about, you know, different chemicals coming together, you know, in the environment, you know, where they produce, um, you know, lightning and uh, uh, strikes um, in an area where there's sort of a lot of um, pond-rich in chemicals of some kind and forms different, you know, chemical compounds and these compounds somehow come together um, and form the first living cell. Well, one, you know, I've mentioned before there are so many reasons why that just, you know, can't happen. Um, statistically and the types of chemical reactions. Well, one of the other reasons is that, again, all living forms of life that we know of have ATP synthase in them. So they have to have this complex molecular machine that spins that is powered by this little battery. And um, everything before it can make copies of itself has to have this ATP synthase. And um, another uh, example of an amazing little machine in our body is called the uh, Kinesin motor, spelled K-I-N-E-S-I-N. Now, in our body, the, we have amazing chemistry in our bodies, absolutely amazing, you know, chemistry. Matter of fact, a, you know, the typical... Uh, you know, sort of human biochemistry textbook is likely to be, you know, in the order of, you know, 60 to 80 centimetres, uh, uh, sorry, uh, 80 millimetres thick, 6 to 8 centimetres thick, um, just describing some of the biochemistry in our body. And um, so using this body, this uh, using this, all these different biochemical reactions, our body makes all sorts of different proteins. Now, you know, proteins are these molecules that we know we get protein from, from meat or legumes and uh, nuts and, um, you know, some in grains. And so, we you know, these are a particular class of uh, compounds that our body needs and we have to take them in as food. Our body then uh, break, digests the food that is high in the proteins, breaks them down into the basic components, amino acids, and then our body can rebuild the proteins it needs from the 
uh, these broken down amino acids. So all the proteins are made from about 22 different types of amino acids uh, that make up the uh, protein. And so when we eat, um, you know, peas and lentils or meat, our body breaks down, gets the amino acids out of those and then synthesises those into the proteins our human body needs. And um, then, of course, when... So our cells in our body make these particular proteins, all according to the code in the DNA code. But then these proteins need to get to their correct destination in the body. Now, that's where the Kinesin motor comes in, and it's a walking molecule. And what it does is it actually takes the protein to the right place in the cell along tiny roadways thanks to address labels that are there in the uh, cells. And it's uh, really amazing. This little motor, which actually stomps along, and again, if you... um, Google, um, uh, go to creation.com uh, forward slash Kinesin, K-I-N-E-S-I-N, all one word, so creation.com Kinesin. You can actually see a video of this Kinesin motor and how it actually walks along and it actually takes the proteins to the right place in the cell. And it takes 125,000 steps to move one millimetre, but it moves a hundred steps every second. So it takes a step in a hundredth of a second. And so ATP, um, again, you know, and it, it's absolutely amazing to see some of the um, animations that they have developed to um, illustrate how this amazing step or walking machine works that's in our body. And again, if we, you know, scientists and so forth that subscribe to evolution have to believe that these amazing machines that work occurred by chance. And so the um, these uh, kinesin, as it moves along, it can carry actually sort of like a bag of proteins um, as it's uh, moving along. Now... The amazing structure of these things, and again, so that they can work and the pathways and all these sort of things, to me, is just overwhelming evidence for design. You know, so I work in a research laboratory that's associated with um, an engineering um, development um, uh, works uh, where engineers design new machines, and the amount of you know, effort that goes in and the different specialties of engineering that that go in and then the tradesmen that build those machines with high precision to the plans. And sometimes as the machines are being built, they have to make modifications to them and and so forth to, um, you know, to improve them. But all this is a result of intelligent design, not, not blind chance, not, you know, somebody decides to drill a hole in a different spot, you know, just blindly, oh, I think we'll have a hole here, so I drill a hole here, oh, let's put a bolt through here, you know. Um, you're not going to end up having a machine that works doing that. <laughs> um, everything has to be designed. Everything has to be in its right place. And it's the same for these molecular machines in our body. It's all interesting. There are, there are 
cause different types of uh, cells. So all the cells in plants and animals are called uh, uricotic cells, and um, these have a nucleus. But uh, bacteria cells are prokaryotes, and they don't have a cell nucleus. So all the uh, uh, eukaryotic uh, cells have kinesin. And um, so essentially these little motors would have had to have been around pretty well at the beginning as well. I think that uh, when we think of these, this, these incredible motors, to me it's just overwhelming evidence that we have a creator, designer. And why scientists and the education system today wants to keep this evidence of creator away from young people uh, today, I, I really can't understand because the evidence is overwhelming that we have a creator. There is a superior intelligence in the universe to us and we're, he's responsible for us. And, of course, that's why the Bible refer, refers to him as our heavenly father. Of course, he amazes. And the Bible also talks about this particular intelligence, God, that created us is non-material. He's not made up out of atoms and molecules. He made atoms and molecules. Another amazing machine, and we often don't think of it as a machine perhaps, but it's the feather, the feathers that we find on birds. And, you know, we find a little feather on the beach. People don't look at it. It's, you know, pretty seagull feather maybe or little bird feather we might find at home or in different places we find some really pretty, you know, feathers with beautiful colours. And, of course, a lot of people are into birding and, and watching birds and all the amazing different types of birds that uh, there are. And, of course, in Australia we have a lot of quite colourful birds in, in Australia and... Um, and some of them are, are, are very small. But the feathers in birds are, again, another amazingly engineered structures. They're strong, they're lightweight, they're aerodynamic, and even when ruffled, they can be preened or stroked back into shape readily. And this comes from the amazing design in their intricate architecture. So feathers have this long shaft down the centre called a rashes, and out from this come some barbs, which in turn have little barbules. These are the tiny little things that you see there on feathers that clip them together, the little barbs together. And in flight, the, uh, uh, in flight feathers, the barbules have hooks that link them to adjacent barbules. And, um, of course, evolutionists used to teach that they came from uh, reptile scales, but, of course, um, this has now been discredited. Uh, you know, it's probably still taught that, you know, the feathers came from dinosaur sales or something. But um, one of the um, articles that was uh, published uh, actually in evolutionary biology uh, some time ago, it says, 
At the morphological level, feathers are traditionally considered homogeneous with reptilian scales. However, the development or morphogenesis, which is the shape and form, and gene structure and protein shape and sequence and filament formation and structure in feathers are different. And that's a very important point to note. You know, people say, oh, yeah, maybe the scales, you know, on the dinosaurs, and you see this pushed all the time, slowly evolved into feathers. But the bottom line is totally different DNA. The DNA to make a feather is totally different to the DNA to make a, a, a scale, reptilian scales, and they're not related, the DNA. So, again, you know, we, we're getting these stories that are told all the time, but when we drill down and look at the hard scientific data that we can analyse, we find that, hang on, it doesn't work. But these little stories are very simple. I mean, to say that a feather evolved from a scale... Uh, dinosaur uh, reptile scale um, is very easy. You know, young children can understand that. They, once they learn about, you know, lizards and scales and know what a scale is, feel a scaly, a scaly skin, and they know what a feather is and that it's solely changed, that, you know, they believe that. And then they're stuck with that without it being revealed that, hang on, these scales are made as a result of a code in DNA, the DNA code. And the DNA codes are so different that one didn't change into the other. And this is, you know, it's sort of really, um, I, I, I guess for me it just seems morally so wrong that we continue to teach these stories to children when we now have growing scientific evidence all the time pointing to unique creation. Let's have a look at, well, I'm getting off track here a bit, let's have a look at the feather, why it's so tough and able to withstrong the, the forces in flight. Because you think the feathers up there, they spread out, they hold that air pressure and support the body of that bird. And uh, it was interesting, some research that was uh, published uh, only a couple of years ago now, in 2017, um, it was published in uh, Nature, Scientific Reports, uh, it was a paper by um, uh, Lingham uh, Solia and Solia, uh, T. Lingham Solia. It was called uh, Microstructural Tissue Engineering in the Rashes and Barb of Bird Feathers. And it was published in Nature Scientific Reports in 2017, number seven. Um, and uh, the other, it, the reference is seven colon 45162. 217 Nature Reports. And um, another report, another uh, one is uh, in Evolution News on the 31st of March 2017. Uh, heading was Feather Design is Better Than Thought. Uh, from memory, they're reporting the, the essentially the same thing. And so um, this was research that came out of the... Uh, so, uh, out of uh, the uh, Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University in South Africa. And what they found is that there's um, that the rashes itself is composed of very special fibres of keratin that run down its length and they're held together with a special glue-like substance as well as by little hooks and rings and so there's a, a double design uh, strategy there. Um, and this 
the rashes, of course, is thicker in space and it tapers and gets thinner. And so if these um, little fibres were totally parallel and hundreds of them, they would need to end before the tip. But at each of those ends, and each of those ends would concentrate the stresses uh, that could start a break, much like you can tear a, a plastic packet much more easily if you make a little cut or a bite in it to start. When you, I know of cutting builder's tape, you just got to make a little nick in it and then it tears quite easily. But what uh, this researcher found was that going towards the tip, these things don't um, terminate in the rashes instead. What they do is at regular intervals, these little fibres either deviate to the left or the right and enter the barb so that the shaft has fewer and fewer of these fibres as it tapers off. And this avoids the problem of crack-like defects and reinforces the overall structure by deeply rooting the barbs into the rashes itself. Now, I know that it sounds a bit complicated when you, when you just talk about it, but it's actually designed um, in, the, in the paper, the comment that was made by the author was, the solution is biomechanically ingenious and novel architecture of the fibre organisation. So here again we see this amazing structure that gives that centre part of the feather amazing strength, but strength in such a way that it minimises the chance of cracking that could then lead to the feather fatigue and breaking. And this is, this is really, when you think about it, it's an amazing design um, and I, I guess if, you know, if I think about it, if I was making some, I'd just run all the fibres through without, you know, of course, not being a, you know, a stress engineer, I wouldn't know that, hang on, that's going to lead to excess forces on the end and increase uh, the risk of stress fractures at the end. But we've got to remember that evolutionists claim that this feather design is blind chance, but yet it's a perfect design. It's, um, it's a design that the researchers are saying, you know, this is absolutely brilliant. Um, and how, of course, they claim that these structures are a result of, you know, perfections over millions of years. But it, you know, how could you have, you know, this partially evolved, you know, flight? Why would these feathers be developing in partially evolved, you know, flight before the birds were fully flying? And you have to have a fully formed feather for the birds to be able to fully fly. And so um, it's interesting that there's a similar sort of structure in, um, in wood and the xylem fibres in, uh, in wood, a major component of wood, undergo a similar diversion from the stem to the branch. And, of course, this can't be explained. This shows we find a similar structure here in um, plants. And so um, we see that, um, again... So scientists look at this, you know, and we think just that the humble plant, but again, the way the fibres are arranged in plants give them this, this additional strength even as the plant tapers off. And to me, these are just classic examples that speak of a super intelligent designer. 
And of course, you know, there are many, many other scientists that recognise that. And and of course, if uh, anyone's interested in reading up on these, my book, In Six Days, Why 50 Scientists Choose to Believe in Creation, um, is available. And again, if you go to creation.com and do a search in the search engine for In Six Days, uh, the full book will come up there and you can read these uh, reasons. Um, remember, if you'd like to uh, listen to this article, uh, this talk again, and uh, check the uh, references, just Google 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au, and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. You've been listening to Faith and Science. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.